Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was June 3rd, 1943. About 50 sailors from the U.S. Naval Reserve Armory in Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles carried clubs and other makeshift weapons as they went through neighborhoods near the armory. They attacked anyone who was wearing a zoot suit, which was a baggy suit popular among jazz musicians and in communities of color. For days, servicemen, police officers, and civilians beat and harassed Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles. There were no deaths, but about 100 Mexican-Americans were injured and 100 were arrested, while about 16 servicemen were injured and 50 non-Latino servicemen and civilians were arrested. A zoot suit consists of loose trousers, a long jacket with wide padded shoulders and wide lapels, a brimmed hat, and a long watch chain. The get-up grew out of the drape suits that were popular in dance halls in Harlem in the mid-1930s. Zoot suits were sort of a political statement because wearing so much fabric seemed wasteful and irresponsible at a time when there were wartime rations on fabric. In the 1940s, zoot suits spread from Black communities to Latino communities and other groups. In Mexican-American communities, the Pachuco counterculture movement embraced the zoot suit. For people who were part of this culture, Wearing a zoot suit was also a fashion and social statement that emphasized rebellion and community inclusion. To many people who were outside of the culture, pachucos were perceived as thugs or too ostentatious for their social status. In 1942, the Wartime Productions Board banned a lot of extra features on clothing, then banned the production of zoot suits altogether. But some tailors kept making them, and they were still legal to wear. Along with stereotypes of Mexican-Americans, who faced discrimination in media and in daily life, came judgment about the types of people who wore zoot suits. Many people thought of Mexican-Americans and those who wore zoot suits, especially as criminals and delinquents. The zoot suit became a sign of suspicion. In 1943, Los Angeles was full of service members from the U.S. military, The Naval and Marine Corps Reserve Center in Chavez Ravine, or the Naval Reserve Armory, was located in a part of the city that was mostly Mexican. Many service members thought that wearing zoot suits was an affront, considering wartime rationing. The idea that zoot suiters were draft dodgers was also floating around. Zoot suit wearers were viewed by many as antagonists, and immigrants in general were looked down upon in the sentiment of the day. Mexican-Americans and service members were often at odds and fought with each other. By the spring of 1943, there were about two or three fights between people in each group every day. These small but frequent conflicts escalated into a larger one that became known as the Zoot Suit Riots. On May 30th, 1943, a sailor left a fight between Zoot Suiters and sailors with a broken jaw. 
This fight is theoretically the inciting incident for the riots that began on June 3rd, when sailors attacked people wearing zoot suits. In the following days, the violence spread. Service members beat zoot suiters and stripped off their clothes. Police officers arrested some of the people who had been beaten. Thousands more people joined the mobs who were punishing people for wearing zoot suits or donning related hairstyles. In addition to Mexican-Americans, Black people and Filipinos were also attacked. Cab drivers gave service people free rides, so more came to the city from throughout Southern California. The violence made its way from downtown Los Angeles to Watts, East Los Angeles, and other nearby neighborhoods. Some people did fight back, but the violence was largely perpetrated by the service members. Police officers mainly protected the service members and arrested many of the victims. Local officials did little to stop the violence and service members did not face serious consequences. Many news reports implied that the violence was justified. The conflict basically ended on June 8th when service members were kept from leaving bases and soldiers and sailors were barred from entering downtown Los Angeles. The next day, the Los Angeles City Council banned people from wearing zoot suits in public, and anyone who did would get 30 days in jail. Two committees were formed to investigate the riots. The Citizens' Committee report found that race prejudice was part of the cause of the riots. It also said that the poor living conditions many Mexican-Americans faced contributed to any delinquency, and that the problem of juvenile delinquency in general was not confined to any race. But the report did not address the violent actions of the service members. Zoot suit riots later happened in other cities in the United States. Zoot suiters later became leaders in the Chicano movement and were active in other fights for social justice. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about the riots, listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Zoot Suit Riots. And if you can't get enough history, check out Unpopular, a new podcast that I host about people in history who challenge the status quo and how their stories can help us think about protest, dissent, and change in today's societies. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey y'all, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that takes history and squeezes it into bite-sized stories. The day was June 3rd, 1897. Blues singer and guitarist Memphis Minnie was born. She was one of the most influential blues artists in the U.S. from the 1920s to the 1950s. Though I'm covering her today, scholarly opinion differs on the exact day and year of her birth. Memphis Minnie was born Lizzie Douglas. In her song, Nothing and Rambling, she says that she was born in Louisiana and raised in Algiers. But U.S. Census records indicate that she was born in Mississippi and raised in a small farming community south of Memphis, Tennessee. She learned to play the banjo and guitar as a child, and she was much more interested in music than she was in farming. When she was a teenager, she left home to move to Bill Street in Memphis. Memphis Minnie began playing music on the streets with jug bands and string groups. She also performed at Church Park. 
By 1929, she had married and was performing with blues musician Joe McCoy. That year, a talent scout from Columbia Records discovered them, and they recorded the song Bumblebee Blues, which became one of Memphis Minnie's most popular songs. Over the years, she recorded several different versions of the song for different labels. The couple continued to produce records together, and they grew more popular in and outside of Memphis. They garnered so much attention that they moved to Chicago, making a name for themselves on the popular blues scene in the city. She and blues musician Big Bill Brunzi went head-to-head in a guitar contest in a nightclub one time, and Minnie took the prize. She also took on artists like Tampa Red, Sunny Land Slim, and Muddy Waters. Around 1935, Minnie and McCoy broke up. At the same time, Memphis Minnie was getting more work as a guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter. She toured a lot in the 1930s, especially in the South. She stood out as a woman in a male-dominated music scene, but she also stood out for playing new music styles and with different instruments. She worked regularly for talent scout and producer Lester Melrose, who created a kind of formula for his blues offerings and toned down Minnie's music. In the late 1930s, she married Ernest Little Son Joe Lawlers, another musician. They made some of Minnie's most memorable songs together, including Me and My Chauffeur Blues and her autobiographical song, In My Girlish Days. Minnie formed a vaudeville troupe to tour theaters and organized Blue Monday shows at Ruby Lee Gatewood's Tavern, a blues club on the south side of Chicago that patrons knew as The Gates. She played a National Electric Archtop guitar, bridging the transition from acoustic Delta blues to Chicago blues. Poet Langston Hughes described her electric guitar as, quote, a musical version of electric welders plus a rolling mill. Muddy Water's song, Honey Bee, was a reworking of Minnie's Bumblebee. Though Minnie found success, the record industry and club owners did take advantage of her. In 1953, Minnie released her last commercial recordings, Kissing in the Dark and World of Trouble. Though audiences' tastes had strayed away from her acoustic blues sound, Minnie and some of her contemporaries found renewed interest. But in the 1950s, her health was failing. She moved to Memphis, and her sister Daisy helped take care of her. After her husband died, she was affected by a number of medical complications. In her later years, fans sent money and musicians held benefits to help her. She died of a stroke in August of 1973. Some of the musicians influenced by Memphis Minnie include her niece Laverne Baker, Bonnie Raitt, and Rory Block. Memphis Minnie was one of the first 20 artists inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame when the Blues Foundation established it in 1980. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. You can also hit us up on social media. We're at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.